All right. I, I love what God's doing with our youth and um, not only who Jackie is, but the woman of God that uh, he's at work in her to become. Well, we are continuing our journey through the Bible. And uh, how are you doing? <laughs> Did you survive this past week and uh, all of the rules and regulations that are a part of uh, last week's readings? Uh, you know that some of the reading that you did this past week have been the minefield that have uh, blown up the aspirations of people that have gone before us that said, I'm going to read through the entire Bible. And they would get to last week's readings and they would like, I can't do this anymore. This is like crazy. So you're thinking now, oh, now we get to go some new and different readings. We're in week eight. If you want to uh, jump in there and start with us. Uh, the good news is you're continuing the journey and you're continuing to make progress. Uh, the hard news is that it's still some of the same rules and regulations that we're going to have for one more week. But just remember, this is a 52-week journey, and I'm only talking about two weeks that are some of this really difficult uh, stuff to make your way through. So hang in there. It's going to be uh, worth it. And I think that in this coming week, God's going to show you some things out of these very ancient rules, regulations, rituals, observances, etc. that are as relevant as today's newspaper for you about what's going on in, in your life and around your life this week. You believe me? <laughs> Today we're talking about how God deepens our faith. Through risk. And if you're leaping ahead and go, oh, he's going to talk about the conquest and when the people moved into the promised land. Not so, Kimasabi. <laughs> we uh, are going to talk about some other things, but I have to ask you, how are you about risk? How are you about going into the deep end? Hey, when I was a little guy, I don't know why. I was just always attracted to the deep end. And I couldn't wait until I learned how to swim so that I could get out of the wading pool and get into the deep pool. And then once I began to get into the deep water, I couldn't wait till I went off the diving board. And then I couldn't wait until I went off the high dive. And I was a little guy when I went off the high dive. When did you go off the high dive? You go, well, I still haven't quite done that yet. But... There's something stirring, exhilarating, risky about going into the deep end, going off the high dive. And so it is with matters of faith. I was the same way when it came to faith as a kid. Uh, I didn't come up in a church-going family. Uh, when I began to get exposed to things of God and things of the faith, I was around 15. Um, some of my friends had... Um, been a part of leading me to Christ, and I began to go to their church. And I, I was a little confused when I started going to church with them because I had just come alive to Christ. I had just put my hope and my faith and my trust in Him, and something had ignited in me. And I would go to church with my friends, and they were bored. And they... You know, we'd go through a Sunday school lesson and they were like, eh, and, and they wouldn't bring their Bible and, and they would talk and write notes and all kinds of stuff during worship gatherings. And, and in my mind, I was like, 
if this is the real deal, I mean, if, if praying is not just the recitation of pious words, but if it's like really talking to God, if it's like really hearing from God, I want to go in the deep end. I want to talk and hear from God. I mean, if scripture reading is not just the rehearsal of old, ancient, dusty stuff, but it's actually a living word that God continues to communicate to our lives through. I want that. I don't want anything less than that. And if God has said, you obey me, you sacrifice, you pour out your life, you allow me to do some things through you, I'll change the world around you. I'm like, I'm in. I want to see that kind of stuff happen. Are you in? How do you feel? How do you think about going deep? Well, some of the readings that we'll be into this week will be God commanding over and over again. I want you to make these kind of sacrifices, and I want these sacrifices to happen exactly, minutely, in these kinds of ways. I want you to give offerings, and I want the offerings to happen exactly like this. And I want you to observe holy days and keep feasts, and I want you to maintain purity, and on the list will go. And you're like, okay, so why? And where is the risk that you're talking about in there? We're going to be looking today at Leviticus chapter 19. And so let me, and you know exactly where that is now because you've been reading. We're going to be in Leviticus 19 and 20. And then we're going to jump over to James in the New Testament, near the end of the New Testament, chapter 4. So open a Bible, Leviticus 19 and 20. And then you can get to James in a minute. I'll give you time to do that. So in chapter 19, let's pick it up in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods or of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Then he'll go on to talk about offerings and even about how you harvest your crop and, and so on and so on. Let's move over to chapter 20. Pick it up with me at verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you. You shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable 
by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Inspired? Excited? Stirred? (laughs) I know. It's like, what? Keeping all of these statutes and rules? That's the risky stuff that you were going to talk to us about today? Yep. (laughs) Now, when Moses tells the people, this is a word from God. You will be holy, for I am holy. Moses might as well have said, you will flap your arms like wings and fly. Because it's impossible. Uh, And if you haven't tried flapping the arms and trying to make the wing thing happen, you know, it's just impossible. You cannot fly by flapping your arms and by white knuckling your behavior and trying to get a grip on life and get in control of everything. You cannot be holy. And yet God says, be it. Become it. Now, is he being unreasonable? Is he having, you know, these unrealistic expectations that are not fair to us? No, the fact of the matter is God is putting something before us that he knows will require our having a relationship with him out of which his power and his grace come into our lives and supernaturally enable us to be something he's told us to be. Now. Quickly, when we talk about holiness, we're not talking about being really good people. Uh, We're not talking about like this sinlessness that was true of Jesus, although God's all about us becoming sinless. But holy in its most basic essence means this, and he says it over and over and over again. We are separated from others, from the culture, to Him. Holiness is about our being separated from the world and to God. It's about us so conducting ourselves in the world that the world says, uh, He must be one of those people that follows you know, that God or Jesus. And it's risky to live that way. If you haven't already found out. It can cost you some popularity. It can cost you some uh, exclusion from some social circles. It can cost you a promotion and job. It can cost you a raise. It can be costly for you to live holy to your loved ones and your family that are around you. Because they catch the collateral damage of what happens to you. And all of these practices 
that God says, I want you to revere your mother and father. I want you to practice Sabbath. I want you to refrain from idols, make sacrifices correctly, not harvesting all your crops because I want you to leave some of the crops on the peripheral so the poor can come along and get food for themselves. Uh, I don't want you to steal. I don't want you to lie. Blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. All of that is about separating yourself from the culture unto God. Uh, to use a more common phrase in our parlance today, it's about being countercultural for a high holy reason. So just think about Sabbath practice for a moment. As you get into the readings, and the readings will talk about you will work for six days, and on the seventh day you will do no work, and you will acknowledge me, and you will worship me, etc. Listen, everybody else worked seven days a week. Everybody else had to work seven days a week in order to make ends meet. In order to be able to make sure the cows got milked and the, and the crop got harvested before it ruined in the field or that it got sowed at the proper time so that it would uh, be able to grow, etc. For a person to practice Sabbath and not work a seventh day was to say something is more important to me than my work, than my income, than my livelihood, than what I can provide for my family, and that is God. And I trust that as I acknowledge Him through Sabbath, He'll take care of me. And not only that, they were to make their land practice Sabbath. For six years... They could sow the land, they could you know, cultivate and fertilize and, and, and then harvest. And so in the seventh year, they were not to do any of that. They were to give the, the land a year of rest. You say, how can I go an entire year without sowing and harvesting? Unless God somehow provides. This is risky stuff. How are my kids going to eat? How are we going to meet our obligations? And so they would practice all these things that, that just stared in the face the culture that was around them. And they were countercultural in uh, this multiplicity of ways that constantly had people looking on, scratching their heads, going, why in the world do they live like that? Why in the world do they make those decisions? Why in the world is that a value to him or to her? Why in the world? Why in the world? Why in the world? What's this God thing they keep referring to? Are we holy? Again, we're not talking about your goodness, you know, the scale of, of how much better you are than some other people in self-righteousness and all those kinds of things. You have to divorce those kind of connotations from what we're talking about. How separated from the culture unto God are you is what we're talking about. Could we be suffering from a case of two-at-homeness with this world? That we're so at home with this world, that we so appreciate and so enjoy and so want the things of this world, that we can't be separated from it in order to be separated to God. For example, we began to rationalize our thinking, we began to compromise in our convictions, and we go, you know, that, that whole thing about gathering, 
as a community of faith and worship. You really think God wants that every Sunday? I mean, I, I go probably more Sundays than I don't across a year. So, you know, God's not that harsh about stuff. He, that's probably good. It's way better than a lot of other people. He wants me to care. I, I get that. He wants me to care about all injustices. I mean, there's a couple of things that really ring my bell, but all injustices, they all matter to me. They all exact some uh, aspect of compassion from me. I don't know that God has that kind of expectation. God wants me to give a tithe. That is so Old Testament. Ten percent of my income. Listen, I'm a generous person. I'll, I'll do some giving. I certainly give more than most. I, he doesn't want that like over-the-top thing called tithe. Do you do any of that rationalizing kind of stuff? Do you have any of that kind of warring mentality that goes on inside of you? Let's look at James. You remember who James is? This is the half-brother of Jesus. He was not impressed with his brother growing up. Uh, you can read in the Gospels where as Jesus' ministry is really launching and people are beginning to believe that Jesus is the Christ, James is thinking he's kind of lost his mind. And on one occasion, he and, and some others tried to prevent Jesus from going to Jerusalem at a feast because they thought he was going to get killed there. They're like, hey, man, don't be insane. But James comes around. He begins to be a believer. He has a special post-resurrection visit from his half-brother Jesus. And he is so impacted by the faith and so converted, he becomes a leader in the church. He's like the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He becomes one of the pillars of the church, and he's written this little epistle near the end of the New Testament. Pick it up with me in chapter 4 and listen to what he says about the dilemma I've just described regarding you and me. Beginning with verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Church people, why can't you get along? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he, speaking of God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom over your sinfulness. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now just keep that open for a moment and look at that. He says there is a war going on inside of us all the time. And he's talking about people that have come to faith. Who are still in the shallow end. He said, you not only have these passions warring in you, but they are winning the war. And it affects you so much that you pray wrongly. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is, uh, God is responsive to prayer. God wants to answer prayer. God will move heaven and earth around prayer. But we must pray correctly. And he says we pray wrongly because of our passions, because of our desires. We, we can't get to the point where we put the glasses on and we look at it through Jesus' perspective. And what God wants and pray his will be done, his kingdom come. It's all about what I want. And he says, here's what you need to understand about holiness. The opposite of holiness is adultery. The opposite of being separated to God and for God is having an affair with the world. Holding on to the world too much. And what the world says is important. You know, I want to be a celebrity. I want to have fame. I want to have fortune. I want to be rich. I want to be able to take these exotic vacations. I want people to think I'm great, etc. World, 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 world. And he says, for everybody that has an affair with the world, you have made yourself an enemy to God. God will not put up with adultery, our unfaithfulness to him. He says, if that is part of your struggle, you're not alone in that. He knows how broken, busted, and fallen we are. He knows how powerful the temptation of the culture around us is. And so he gives us grace. And when we need more, he gives us even more grace and more grace and more grace. And you say, what is grace? Grace is the stuff. That we need in any given moment. So you need some power to overcome temptation? Grace. You need wisdom to make a godly decision? Grace. You need some courage to deal with an unreconciled relationship that's bringing a lot of pain and hurt? Grace. Grace, grace, grace. And he says this. The more humble you are, the more grace you get. And again, what are we talking about with humility? Humility is a position. It is a posture whereby I am about making much of God and not so much about me. Now, how counter is that to our experience? Where we tend to make life all about us. All the circumstances that are happening are all about me. And God says, no, they're not. They're all about me. They're all about God and the things that God's doing around you and in you and seeking to do through you. And your humility sees that 
makes much of that and makes little of self. He says, the more humble you are, that's like a magnet to me. I will grace, 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 grace you as you live in humility. Now, this is what we've got to get clear on. Practices don't earn grace. Practices can position us for grace. Can. Because practices can also position us for pride. I pray more than you pray. I'm more holy than you. I give more than you. I serve more than you. And, and so practices can be deadly and they can breed a pride and God resists the proud and God turns you over to the outcomes of pride if you do that. But if in humility you're engaged in the practices, then they bring about a separateness for you with God where he can shower you with grace. In fact, I think that's one of the best pictures of what we're talking about. The practices don't earn the grace. The practices position us so that the showers of grace are happening. Now, if there was a shower over here and I turned the faucets and the water began to pour, you know, that's great for the floor over there where it's pouring. I don't get to benefit from that. And I've been out working all day and I'm hot and I'm dusty and I'm tired and I, I would love the refreshment of a shower. And there it is. God gives it. But there is no effect upon my own life. But if I position myself, I haven't earned it. It's already happening. But if I position myself under the shower head, then all of a sudden I'm reaping all the benefit that comes with the showers of his grace. And that's what these practices could have done for the ancient Hebrews. And the contemporary practices that we have could do for you and for me. You see, the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew that got this, never thought, I'm going to bring my animal to the tabernacle for a sacrifice, or I'm going to bring my grain to the tabernacle for a sacrifice, and that will earn me the grace of God. The Hebrew that got that just understood that this was an obedience to God. It was a way of identifying with God. It was a way of keeping him separate from the culture unto God, all of which resulted in a positioning of his life for the showers of grace to fall from God. Now, we still practice a number of countercultural acts. For example, we still pray. The ancients were exhorted to do that, and we are as well. But the question is, do you get it that this isn't about the recitation of pious words so that God will think well of you? This is about a dialogue. This is about communication with the living God. This is about you really talking to him and getting still and really listening from him. We still practice scripture reading. And again, the Bible affirms it is a living word. It's not a dead word that was applicable in some former day. God continues to disclose himself through the scriptures. He continues to speak through the scriptures. He continues to guide through the scriptures. 
And so you're faced with the choice every week when you're doing these readings. Will I just go through the motions? Will I just check the box? Will I just accomplish another step in the rung of my accomplishment? I've read the whole Bible. Or will I commune with God in this text? Could it be that God would actually say something to me out of the mundane, meticulous uh, features related to an ancient sacrifice? He just might. We still practice Sabbath. Now, most of us don't practice it on the seventh day of the week, on Saturday, like the ancients did. Most of us, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, began to practice Sabbath on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day that he resurrected. But some of us have also found a way to practice Sabbath on another day because we tend to work on Sunday. I I tend to work on Sunday. I know this all looks like fun to you, but I'm working. And so Friday is my Sabbath. And I specifically order my week around Friday in ways that I unplug, I get with God, I have uh, time with God and with Sherry, and we have some uh, conversations and some prayers and some readings and thinking and so on like that that keep our heart before the Lord. This whole thing of tithes and offerings. See, God is like, Will you trust me? And here's a way I'm going to help you to do that. Why don't you live on 90% of your income? Give me the other 10 and let me show you how I'm going to provide and take care of you. That's what that's all about. God doesn't need your money. This church doesn't need your money. We need to give our money as means to... Trust God and see God work. And uh, you might be surprised to know that some of our friends in this room have not only discovered the power of God working in our lives through tithing and living on 90%. Some of our friends in this room live on 80. Some of our friends in this room live on 75% of their income and they tithe 20 or 25%. And I'll walk around talking about that so that, you know, you can do that because that's not what it's about. You go, gosh, well, I wish I earned as much money as they do so they can do that. No, they don't earn a lot of money. That's not what we're talking about. It has no relationship to how much you earn. It has relationship to how much you're willing to give and to trust and to see God work in and out of your life. Now, offerings are what we give because God directs us to give over and above our tithes. And so what we were talking about today, the special missions giving opportunity, that's an offering. It's over and above your tithe. And when you uh, give, like we were just talking a moment ago, to something like Agros or some other charities within the community, all that are, are offerings over and above my worship of God through the tithe. And then we still practice servanthood and sacrifice where we roll up our sleeves and we sacrifice our time and our effort and our energy and we make a difference in the lives of people. Now, if you make use of our restrooms today, either before or after the service, and you appreciated them being clean, there's a servant sitting near you that cleaned that for you. You've got a child in our nursery 
and you appreciate the fact that they're learning something or they're being cared for, they're being loved on, their diapers being changed or whatever, that's because we have some servants who are sacrificing this hour and being in here with us to make that difference. We have people here every Tuesday night from various ethnicities that are learning English because some of you serve them and sacrifice for them. We uh, have a variety of projects that we're engaged with people that are in a transitional living situation. Service. Sacrifice. We have some others of you that collect a variety of resources and take them to some of our homeless friends. Service. And sacrifice. These are ways that we separate ourselves from the culture that says, get, 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 keep, keep, keep. We separate ourselves from that and to God. And then the whole matter of church discipline. Nobody got happy when I said that. <laughs> What's your connotation of church discipline? Anybody read in recent days about church discipline? It's in the newspaper right now. Why? Because it's an example of church discipline at a real extreme end. And that is like a fraction of what church discipline is all about. Church discipline is about our entering into a covenant with one another where we have accountability with one another so that we can help one another be separate from the culture and separate to God so that we can be holy people, so that he can fully form Christ in us. That's what church discipline is all about. I willingly submit myself to a number of you and to a number of our church leaders so that I am helped in my sanctification, in my growth in holiness. And not a few times through the years, some of you have point blank asked me, how much time are you spending at home? Are your kids getting enough of your attention? How well is Sherry feeling loved right now? Talk to me about your weight. What's going on with that? That's pretty personal. <laughs> on and on we could go. And, and why do I invite that kind of conversation and that kind of accountability? Because I want to be in the deep end. I don't want to stay in the shallow end. And church discipline and accountability and our checking in with one another is a means, it's a practice that keeps me under the shower of God's grace and blessing so that he is fully formed in me. So, what do you do with all that? Some of you are still trying to figure out the Jesus thing. That's great. Come to a decision. Have you been weighing the evidence about the person of God, the work of God, the salvation that can come through Christ, the, the cost that is a part of you giving yourself to Him. Have you, have you been considering all that? Are you believing? Are you ready to cross that line of faith? Will you humble yourself? And thereby receive grace. Position yourself under His showers so that He can empower you to be what He says you are to be. Holy. Will you practice your holiness? Praying and reading, Sabbathing, serving and sacrificing and giving, living in accountability with one another. Listen, I've been doing this for decades. 
I would not keep doing this if it wasn't right, if it didn't thoroughly engage my heart with God, and if it wasn't transforming my life. This is where it's at. Will you risk saying no to the stuff of this world and yes to the things of God? Let me pray for you. So, Father, in this moment of decision, will you bring grace? Will you help us to get past our broken passions and desires so that we can lay hold of what you give us, what you plan, what you purpose? We pray that you would have your will and your way to your glory in us. In Jesus' name, amen.